If you're a local government enthusiast who's looking for fresh conversations over a hot cup of morning coffee or tea or while you're driving or walking the dog, you do you. You're in the right place. Welcome to the Local Gov Cafe podcast, hosted by Susan Gardner and Ann Mitchell. This podcast is devoted to having conversations that matter, covering the full menu of municipal topics. You'll discover guests who bring insight and inspiration to the issues that drive and challenge communities. We'll be talking with leaders in policy, practice, consulting, and academia to put a spotlight on civic government and the people who make it all happen at the local level. Good morning, Anne. How are you this morning? I'm great, Susan. I'm happy to see you again and excited for our guest. Me too. Why don't you uh, tell us what's on the menu today? Today on the menu, we have Paul Lang, and Paul is from New Brunswick. He is the executive director of the Kent Regional Services. He has held various management roles in local government in New Brunswick, and he sits on the board of Association of Municipal Administrators, and he specializes in regional and rural development. Paul has written a few articles on the changes that are coming to the New Brunswick municipalities, and we're very happy to have him here today. Good morning, Paul. Good morning, Anne and Susan. Good morning. Well, I, for one, am uh, excited to dig in on this topic. Over the years, of course, municipal reform has been a recurring issue for uh, local governments in Canada, something that often impacts rural communities in particular. Sometimes those changes have been voluntary. Sometimes they've been forced by provincial masters. Sometimes they've been politically driven. Sometimes they've been fiscally driven. So excited to learn more uh, and share more with people about what's happening right now in New Brunswick. And maybe we can start by you giving us a little bit of background, what the structure currently is, what's driving the reform right now, and what it's going to look like when this is all done. So the, uh, the current structure in New Brunswick uh, goes back uh, to the 1960s. I have to give a bit of background of what happened in, 19, in the 1960s to give you what's current and what will become next year. So uh, back in the 1960s, the provincial government uh, made a big reform. It was called Equals Opportunity. So be- <clears throat> before the um, before 1960, counties uh, and municipalities were responsible for social services, so hospitals and justice and and um, and uh, courts and policing. And so um, the 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 Liberal government back then uh, decided to centralize uh, services like social services to the provincial government. So education, social development and justice became provincial departments and municipalities were responsible for services that were uh, given to properties. So in 1966, there were many incorporations in New Brunswick. Uh, most of the most of the municipalities today were incorporated back in 1966, and that current structure hasn't changed or barely changed since. Uh, and we all know that um, 
local governments have changed in the last 50 some odd years. They've changed significantly the role they play in, uh, in service delivery. So the, uh, the timing was overdue to, uh, to uh, have this reform. Some changes have been made like in the in the late uh, in the late two thousands, uh, a new structure was created, which which was called the rural community. Uh, so that um, was created to uh, give the opportunity for non incorporated areas to become a local government, uh, because currently in New Brunswick. Uh, there's over 35% of the population that lives in non-incorporated areas. So the minister of local governments is their mayor. Uh, they, uh, they select uh, local advisory committees that talk on behalf of their constituents uh, to the minister, but don't have any budgetary powers, uh, don't have any really any democratic um, role it's just that they talk on behalf of their of their community so there is a big democratic deficit uh, that exists since the 1960s here in New Brunswick so I'll, I'll go back in the 2000s rural communities uh, were allowed to be created uh, there's about seven or eight of them in New Brunswick but it was on a voluntary basis so citizens would vote through a plebiscite if they wanted to become a rural community. Uh, but the success rate of this model uh, is around 40%. So yeah, so it's, uh, it, it became an issue uh, in, the, in many communities. Uh, many communities became a bit discouraged uh, in the last years because they came to plebiscite and it failed. So, um, so there's about seven or eight of them in the province. In 2012, the uh, provincial government started another small reform and uh, decided to create uh, regional service commissions, which I am a director of one of them. Uh, essentially, this came from a recommendation of a report that came out in 2008 uh, that encouraged the municipalization of the province and with that, uh, the regionalization of certain services, such as land use planning and solid waste management and uh, policing, economic development and, and other services. So in 2012, the government took part of that report, we call it the FIN report, and uh, implemented a new regional governance structure um, but it's a service delivery mechanism. It's not a regional government. Uh, it was a creation to deliver services in areas that uh, services that were not economically viable to have themselves offered by individual municipalities. And also uh, these uh, boards of these commissions were uh, are, are um, composed of elected officials. Uh, as compared to the previous structure, we had um, sector-based commissions, but they were political nominations, whether municipal or provincial. Mm -hmm. So now it's the mayors of the, um, of, the of the areas. There's 12 regional service commissions, and uh, it's the mayors and the presidents of the local service districts. 
So there's a mechanism in place to choose who will sit on the board uh, because they can't sit, all of them, they can't sit on the board because there's 240 LSDs in New Brunswick. Mm -hmm. So from a population of five to 9,000. So, uh, so it was impossible to have all of them. So the province put in a, a, a mechanism so that they, they can elect a number, a minimum of four to a maximum of 10 representatives on the regional service commissions. So since 2013, there hasn't been much happening. Um, in 2017, the, the government uh, re well, revised the Local Governance Act uh, to make it more um, permissive rather than prescriptive, because it was we had a prescriptive act, uh, but there wasn't many like significant changes. And then uh, this government got elected in 2020, and one of its major mandate is uh, local governance reform. So, uh, and the objective was to give uh, every New Brunswicker the opportunity to elect. A, uh, a council um, within their communities. So, um, so the, that's the, the, um, the, the timeline from the 60s right up to, to today. Can I just ask a quick question, Paul? How would what your structure is currently compare to upper tiered municipalities in Ontario or regional municipalities in BC? So the uh, so we don't have any uh, regional municipalities or upper tier. The regional service commissions are a service delivery base organization. Uh, the, their board is composed of elected officials, but in the uh, in the regional service delivery act, uh, it's it clearly states that it, we're not there to, um, uh, to we're govern. not a we're not a regional governance body. Yeah, okay. but. <laughs> Um, many boards have taken a, a um, political uh, stand on many issues. Uh, although we don't have any taxation authority or uh, any formal um, regional governance um, structure, uh, many of our boards have taken position on hospital closures or uh, shale gas development or uh, ce cellular reception. Uh, yeah, so... Um, so so work, working outside of their mandate in essence. You know, yes. the, yeah, so in, within the, the mandate of the Regional Service Commission, there's what we call regional collaboration. So that can be interpreted in, yeah, in many ways. Okay. So can you outline the process that the, the reform that is now being implemented, how will that take place, Paul? So it, it started back in, uh, in, 20, uh, in 2021. Uh, the government uh, presented its uh, reform process. So essentially, uh, they came out with a green paper uh, on what is what could become the, the, the picture of local governance in New Brunswick, they presented numerous options uh, in the green paper. So the green paper was divided into, two, into four blocks. One was, region, it was uh, local governance structure, regional um, services, land use planning, and municipal finance. So they, that came out in, in the spring of 2020. 
and then uh, well, the pandemic hit, <laughs> and uh, the government was uh, was supposed to hold many in-person meetings, uh, but it didn't pan out. So there was numerous um, po- uh, virtual meetings in the in the province. Uh, and, and, and the process of consultations, all, all, although that they were in, uh, in virtual, uh, the government did a fairly good job in informing the, the population of what is coming. The green paper was circulated. Um, like most of the population knew something was coming. They didn't know then because the green paper presented numerous options. Uh, but they knew reform was happening in New Brunswick. And although the minister, when he was elected, said that um, there would be no forced amalgamation, uh, this reform was happening regardless. Um, if communities did not recommend a uh, boundaries or a structure, the department or the minister would. So... That's what happened. Some communities came in and said, this is the, 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 the boundaries of our new community that we want. There was criteria to follow, like for tax base and population. And uh, if you fall in, in this, uh, the, uh, in, these, uh, in these categories, uh, the minister and his, and his staff would consider their proposal. Some of them were too small. Some of them were too big. Some of them did not respect the cultural differences uh, but uh, essentially, uh, the minister gave the, the communities a chance to make proposals. So, um, so consultations happened from March until the summer of 2020. Um, and then in early fall, the department published a, another document was, that was what we have heard in the, in the consultations. Essentially, we knew what people's opinions were, so they just wanted to gather that that uh, th- those comments together. Um, there was, in some areas, a lot of pushback with this reform uh, because the current the current structure that we have with the local service districts, um, their tax rate is significantly lower than those than the ones in the municipalities, and in in a lot of, in in a lot of them, there's no um, there's, there's no cost sharing mechanism between the local service district and the new neighboring municipality for services. So you could live in a LSD, a local service district, right beside a municipality that has a rink, field, baseball field, anyway, all the services uh, and not pay a cent in them. So, and have your tax rate about 30, 40, 50 cents per hundred dollars uh, of assessment lower than the municipality. So this, this new, um, the new proposals that came in were seen as a threat to rural communities in New Brunswick. A lot of them, even though they didn't know yet in September of, of last year, what could become of their local service district, a lot of them put out a red flag saying our taxes will go up significantly with reform and uh, we don't want any of this. So uh, the minister throughout his his consultation said that communities would not be paying for services they don't get. But if you do get them from a, from a neighboring community, you'll be expected to pay some in those in, the, in those facilities and programs. 
So September, October came in, and then in late November, the white paper came out, which was the proposal, the final proposal of, of the department uh, or, or of the minister. And the proposal was, uh, we have 340 communities, we're going down to 90, with 78 municipalities and 12 rural districts. So uh, right now we have 240 or 230 odd uh, local service districts. Um, so the minister recognized that in some areas it would not be feasible because of distance, because of tax base, because of culture to have some communities join others. Uh, so he, uh, so the department recommended the creation of 12 areas, uh, one for each regional service commissions that will remain unincorporated, but will have a elected uh, board uh, instead of now it's through a selection process. So, but the population in those areas are minimal compared to the general population of the area. So, for example, in Kent, uh, our population is around 35,000 people. The rural district will have a population of around 3,000. And it's spread out throughout the area. So, uh, so now the ministry presented 78 municipalities. Um, and then communities could then work on the boundaries, on the final boundaries to make sure, like, do we really fit in this community or not? Uh, in my area, for example, uh, two communities decided to join each other. Instead of having two smaller communities, they talked to each other and said we should have one. Uh, so now in New Brunswick, um, the proposal that was sent uh, to the minister is seven, 77 municipalities and 12 rural districts. So um, January of this year, now implementation process started. Uh, and it's um, and it's been going uh, quite interestingly. So the the department hired new, uh, about twenty um, facilitators to help the those communities get together, have a transition committee to implement what is this new community, what services, the if there's wards uh, for for election. So there's about 20 of them on the local governance side, and there's about half a dozen for the regional service commissions, uh, because the regional service commissions, um, they were also involved in reform. They were added five new services to the existing ones that we have now. So regional service commissions will be responsible for regional transportation. They will be responsible for community development, essentially poverty reduction. They will be responsible for um, economic development, uh, recreation cost sharing, uh, tourism, and public safety collaboration. And in the three urban areas, which is Fredericton, St. John, and Moncton, they are responsible for homelessness. So, and that will start in 2024 or 2023. Uh, 20, 2024 yeah that's really interesting so paul just like at a big picture level it's almost like some of the social services that went up in the 60s are now coming back down would you agree with that totally agree 
the, um, on the poverty reduction side, there was already a decentralization back about 10, 12 years ago. Um, the, the province created what we called social inclusion networks uh, or community inclusion networks. So it was a non-for-profit organization in each of the regions that were responsible for creating activities or programs to reduce poverty. Um, the success rate wasn't as high as they expected. So they decided to transfer those responsibilities from the non-for-profit to the regional service commissions. Transportation, aside from the, the urban sector, it's the same thing. It's some, a lot of them were non-for-profit, so they are now transferred to us. Economic development, it was regional up until 2012. It went back to the province and now the province is sending it back to the regions. Uh, and tourism, it was, there, was, there wasn't any real structure. It was very centralized uh, at the provincial government. There was regional or municipal initiatives, but it, it wasn't structured. So now that's a new, uh, new mandate. And uh, on the public safety side, regional service commissions were uh, not required, but encouraged to have committees before. Now it will be mandated. And on the regional uh, uh, recreation cost-sharing um, service, uh, each region has identified what is a regional facility. And now the Regional Service Commission is responsible to prepare cost-sharing agreements between communities. So, um, so yeah, so this, like the, the, the implementation process is, is in the works. On the, uh, going back to the green paper, there was four, uh, four new mandates. Uh, on the land use planning side, all of, the, all of the province will have land use plans. So currently, uh, municipalities do have uh, land use plans. And in the uh, local service districts, a lot of them don't. And now they will be required to have one because not most of them are becoming incorporated inside of a municipality. So they will have land use plans. And finally, on the municipal finance, uh, they will take a bit longer to work on this. We know that the, uh, we have an equalization uh, structure uh, for funding. Um, there, there's two uh, individuals, an, econo an economist and um, someone that has experience in government, they were hired to prepare a new uh, funding equalization formula because right now the formula, nobody understands it. So they want to make it uh, understandable for, uh, for elected officials and, and staff. So this is happening now. And finally, uh, the government accepted to uh, create what we call the municipal commission. They have one in Quebec. So uh, if... I don't know, two municipalities are fighting on cost sharing, then they can go to the municipal commission and this they will try to resolve the issues. Um, and the municipal commission will also include the property assessment uh, board and the planning appeal board. So this will all be included in the municipal commission coming in 2024. So, um, so yeah, so 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 reforms the, the the reform process started or the, the implementation in in uh, January, 
Um, and it's been, it's been tough for municipalities um, because the current councils um, will be dissolved at the end of November because we're going to have new elections. And, a lot of the, and, and we had municipal elections in May of 2021. So you can imagine like you've got newly elected councils. They've been there for less than a year and then reform happens and like their powers are essentially um, almost eliminated uh, because the facilitator that is named by the department has the responsibility to make sure that by November that community can, can hold elections. So they have to, like, like I said, work on what is the governance structure of this new community? Do we want wards? How many elected officials? Uh, council uh, compensation? Um, cost sharing of, of facilities? So um, in, in some areas, there's two, three fire departments. Uh, who's the chief of those fire departments? How many staff do we need? So this has been going on since January. And on top of that, you've got so this you've got a committee that is not elected. There, some uh, some uh, councils member uh, council members from municipalities and other from local service district that essentially have no power over their community. It's the minister. So, but right now they have full authority on determining. Council structure, budgets, staff, uh, hiring. So uh, it gets very interesting in some areas because current councils feel that they are losing complete power um, and they're giving it to a committee that has no, well, in their eyes, has no legitimacy uh, and they'll be making all the shots until, until fall. So, um, so it's been, yeah, it's, it's been quite interesting. Uh, well, since, since January right now, we're, we're in a bit of a bit of a pause. So, and, and also uh, on top of that, uh, municipalities have to, had to change names. So this was, uh, in certain areas, very, a very, very sensitive topic, um, where, uh, the, let's say the, the 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 central community or the 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 village that that is the the host of most of the services their council could would say our new community should hold our name but the neighboring local service districts didn't agree so you've got communities in new brunswick now that have names that make no sense to those that live there names that were created to put something on paper well, all of this for me rings a lot of deja vu about what happened in Ontario with the Mike Harris government in the early 1990s and the path of, oh, it's, it's your choice. You just do so voluntarily. In the end, in Ontario, the number of municipalities was re reduced from 800 and something down to 444 now. So we're seeing something similar there and the downloading of responsibilities to the assumption that somehow these larger bodies are going to be able to deliver those uh, services. But the funding from the province isn't always clear. And ultimately in Ontario, I think, you know, it came circled around again to 
ultimately a who does what study to kind of do a realignment again and re-upload some of those things. But it's really a, a familiar sounding story. And as you said, there's there's all these uh, community issues. Uh, sometimes the communities that are put together don't always fit. In Ontario, a lot of those communities around the name thing, ultimately they had to choose a name, but to kind of respect those other communities, there's still signs that, you know, refer to it as the community of, so that they, you know, they got to keep some of, some of that identity. So it'll be interesting to see how this is resolved in communities in New Brunswick and, and how they'll kind of find their way forward. And I'm sure it's going to be uh, studied into the future too. You've talked about what some of the challenges have been in this next period leading up to uh, those elections in November. What is, you know, what, what sort of challenges still remained? What are, what's being wrestled with there? So the, uh, the, the latest uh, challenge is budget. Right now, they're working on budget, and um, it's, it's tough because current councils uh, don't want to see their rate go up, uh, although they don't have any responsibility over budget because the, the budget for next year will be decided by the minister. Uh, so he's delegating power to the, to the facilitators of each community to prepare budgets. But you can imagine that uh, it gets very sensitive around the table on um, staff remun- uh, staff compensation. Um, so now you've got new communities uh, that are a lot larger. Councils should be paid more. Current councils uh, don't agree uh, because they say that uh, their current compensation is sufficient. Um, you, you need more staff. You need to... To pay those staff better wages, so you got councils that don't agree with that because they say that they're anyways. It's it, it gets very complicated. Um, a lot of the facilitators uh, are trying to give the uh, the responsibility of recommendation to the the advisory committees or the transition committees. Uh, but if there's an impasse, the the transition facilitator has full authority to uh, impose. So, and nobody wants that. So they've been trying to uh, work with each other on determining what budget the community needs. I just had a question about the transition facilitators. How did they get chosen? And out of curiosity, who would put their hand up for that? (laughs) Oh boy, that's a lot of, heavy, heavy responsibility, but so difficult to, to traverse those waters. So a lot of them were, uh, were high, well, all of them were hired by the province and a lot of them were uh, consultants in community development, in strategic planning, um, and government, um, ensured that uh, there were not like our current government is conservative that were that were that the consultants were not all conservative so we've got liberal leaning uh, consultants you've got uh, ndp leaning co- consultants and and conservative so they did a great job finding uh, people the tough part was finding the people 
Um, a lot of them have no or very little municipal experience. So this causes issues when it comes to implementation because they get their, their directives from the province. Uh, the department uh, went into other departments to get uh, staff for secondments because they did not have the uh, the staff internally to implement this reform. So you've got staff coming from uh, from the pre premier's office, from Department of Tourism, Natural Resources, Health, whatever, coming into local governments that have very few experience, and um, and on top of that, you've got facilitators that a lot of them don't have any experience. So the timelines were not uh, respected uh, because everybody's learning at the same time. Uh, fortunately, those in, in the areas that, that the facilitators had uh, municipal experience, we, we can see the difference. Uh, like in my area, our facilitator is a retired mayor and uh, a retired chair of the regional service commission of a regional service commission. So when he came in, like he knew how, how our budget was made up. He knew the, the, the board composition, like the, so for us, transition is going very easy. Uh, but on the municipal side, um, some of them, it's not as, as, as good. When you said consultants were brought in that had no municipal experience, I literally felt a chill. <laughs> go up my back and it explains how they were able to find people because yeah. people with municipal experience would know that these are very difficult things for communities and yeah. it really requires a, a deep understanding of how communities work the local community culture and politics and how all of those things interact and I would think it would have to be a challenge to uh, not have those kinds of insights coming in. It is, it is. And where it gets uh, a bit more complicated is when, um, when there were two municipalities joining together, they each had their own CAOs. So now there's competition. So the facilitator it has to work with both of them, knowing that both of them will apply or could apply for the job. And uh, in, in a lot of cases, it was open competition. So new people applied for the job. So you got to work with current CAOs that are helping you to implement re this reform because without the help, without the, the work of the CAOs, those facilitators cannot do their, their job. They need to have access to budget. They need to have to get access to policies, bylaws. Uh, that corporate memory, they need to have access to that. So, and at the same time, well, the CAOs have to reapply for their, jo their job. So uh, it's not in every cases, because in some cases you had one municipality with a group of the local service districts, then the local service districts did not have any CAOs. It was a local service manager hired by the province uh, who is responsible for dozens of, of uh, local service districts. So in, in, in some cases, the CAO was the only one, which is, which is good. But um, so this complicated things because uh, a CAO could say, why would I give all this energy 
to this process when I don't even know if I'm keeping my job in September of this of 2021. So for the uh, for the greater good of the organization. <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah but i mean we're all human and and uh some of them have been there for many years and um and i know like some of them were not chosen and uh it's unfortunate and uh yeah it, but that's the process so you've talked a bit about all the changes that are going to happen and and there certainly is a lot of challenges but what do you see paul uh, the opportunities with all this reform? Well, f- first of all, on a, on a governance side, all of New Brunswick will be able to elect local, efe- uh, local elected officials. I mean, before, about a third of the population did not, did not have a say in how services were delivered in their communities. It was all... Uh, run by a by, by the provincial government in in about a third of the k in a third of the population, and that third covered about eighty percent of the land mass. So now you've got ninety percent of the population in New Brunswick that will be part of a municipality that will be able to elect council, will be able to run on councils, um, and. Uh, and determine collectively what they want as a community. Uh, do they want to invest in, in recreation programs? Do they want to invest in infrastructure uh, as of before they did not? So I see this as a big, big opportunity. The other one is we had many, many small villages and towns that were not sustainable. And now they will become a lot more sustainable, some of them not, but because of where they are located, if they're an island or what, I mean, those are, ex- are extreme cases, but in, mo- in most cases now municipalities will become viable in New Brunswick. Um, so, and, and I think this is, this is great because <laughs> you've got municipalities of seven, 800 people that uh, had no capacity to improve infrastructure. They had no capacity to hire staff to deliver uh, programs or services. So, uh, and had no capacity to even um, uh, implement bylaws because they had no staff to enforce them. So this will make sure to have, will will make sure that people have a, a structure Local, a local government that, that cares about its community. So th- this is big. I do want to ask about, you know, you mentioned about some of the challenges during the pandemic. And uh, I remember seeing, and I can't remember which communities they were, but some discussion from some smaller communities in New Brunswick around the pressures of dealing with the pandemic and not having sufficient resources, which, you know, speaks to the sustainability issue you mentioned and that, uh, for those communities, at least, they were welcoming. They recognized that they weren't, you know, uh, the administrators actually recognized this wasn't sustainable. They they didn't have enough support. They couldn't afford support. Uh, they couldn't deal with uh, the pressures of what was required for their communities. Yes, uh, we've seen a lot of that, especially on the elected side, the uh, municipal associations that we had in the province, uh, all um, were supportive of, of reform. 
one more than the other. The uh, Francophone Association of Municipalities have been uh, fighting for this for the last 20 years. Um, so, but it, it got interested, interesting uh, once the um, once the first map was published. Uh, some elected officials uh, said, "Oh, I don't want to be with my neighbor. Uh, I thought that uh, it was just us and the neighboring local service districts." So uh, some mayors fought government against the proposed map, and uh, government said, "No." You're going with your neighbor and that's it. That's all. This is how if you want a sustainable community, uh, you have to join your neighbor. So uh, we've seen in both cases somewhere elected officials were unhappy with the map. And in other cases, for example, in Kent, where the neighboring community said we're going to join together because uh, we're going to be stronger. So I think and there's. In the middle of that, there's uh, there were other municipalities. Some were neutral, and some of them, uh, ex well, what was presented was expected of them. So, uh, uh, but I'd say uh, I, I was I'm, I'm very surprised by the lack of pushback from the communities, especially on the rural side. Initially, um, there was like people were unhappy, but now that they saw that they see that government is move, moving forward with this, they're accepting it. And this has been a very hot potato in New Brunswick since the 2000s. No government wanted to take on this reform because of political backlash. But finally, it it's not as bad as people expected. <laughs> Do you think, uh, Paul, the way that the provincial government went about the collaboration with the municipalities, the regional districts, that that was a piece of it being more successful? It was. I mean, the, the, the municipal associations have been in the media for many years fighting for this. So if you read newspapers, you knew that a lot of municipalities were in favor of, of reform. Uh, what happens is that in the rural uh, areas, in the local service district, they did not have any formal association or representation. So when the green paper and the white paper came out, uh, they were felt um, they felt a bit uh, disadvantaged compared to the to the municipalities where they had an organization, a structure that could defend their uh, their views. As for the local service districts, well, it was it's the minister, and the minister want wanted this reform, so they uh, they tried to create a an association with uh, some members from each region, uh, but they did not get the traction I think that they wanted to. Uh, and now this association essentially is dissolved or might be changing their mandates into something else. But uh, they were not taken very seriously by, by government because of their lack of organization. Now, one of the hottest issues in these reform situations involves HR and uh, the concern that, uh, you know, you kind of mentioned with respect to the administrators, you know, you're only going to keep one. 
what are the HR implications for the the rest of uh, the st- the municipal regional staff throughout uh, New Brunswick? In this reform, the government said that no one would lose their job, or not necessarily a position, but their their work inside of the corporation. So this never really reassured staff, especially senior staff, like, I mean, like blue collar staff, they, I mean, it's not really going to change. They're, they're the higher boss might change, but I mean, roads have to be patched and sidewalks need to be cleaned and programs and arenas need to be offered. But senior staff, clerks, treasurers, and, and uh, CAOs, some of them are not too sure what's going to happen because are we going to need two clerks or just one or the treasurer position? Do we need an assistant treasurer? So uh, some of them have presented a HR structure in their community. Some of them start from scratch, which is good because they'll be hiring. But uh, where we see two or more municipalities join together it's a lot more complicated. Same thing applies for regional service commissions. So we're 12 of us in the province as executive directors, and we all had to reapply for our job. They decided to change the name of the, of the position. So right now we're executive directors. The new position will be CEO. Uh, so I think that's, that was a way to, to um, the reason why they wanted to, to put the position back to competition. Um, and, and it's the same thing as municipalities. The, um, the director, the executive director cannot lose his job. If he or she is not hired as the CEO, uh, CEO that person will have to make a decision like, where do I want to, where, where can I fit in that organization knowing I don't have that, that uh, top job? So by the time this, uh, this podcast airs, uh, it's, it's likely that a decision will have been made. So uh, we wish you all the the, <laughs> the luck in the world for your uh, your reapplication for that job. On a on a, per, on a personal note, somebody who is a CAO and has studied this, I am happy to hear they're changing the name from executive director to CAO. Because it's, not, I, it's, not C, it's not CAO. Oh, it's CEO. CEO. Oh, that is confusing then. Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. it is confusing, and I don't agree with the title. I, I think it should be CAO uh, because essentially I have the same responsibilities and the same authority as a municipal administrator. My my council or board is mayors, <laughs> so um, anyway, it's yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's especially confusing I think when when that ter- terminology is used in different ways in different places you know in Ontario the legislation uh the mayor like you know the chief administrative officer is not a required position but the mayor is the chief executive officer so you know it's a political person in the, in that role so a name says so much and yet <laughs> perhaps yeah. not right and and in, and in French PD, uh, so CEO is PDG, so président directeur général, but it's not the same translation. So in French, they decided to name that premier dirigeant, so first director. Mm. So anyway, yeah. <laughs> well, good luck, Paul. <laughs> yes, good luck. Thanks. And, uh, you know, 
maybe in, in a, a year's time with uh, the new structures in place, we'll have to have an update to see how yeah. things are going then. And you can yeah. come, come out to Alberta and help them because they need help restructuring yeah. here. Alberta's <laughs> next. Oh. Alberta's oh, it is. next. They're looking okay. at it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, no, and, and us, we have elections on November 28th, and this will be interesting because we're going to get all new councils. Current, uh, like for example, in my area, I have uh, seven municipalities and 20 local service districts. We're going down to six municipalities and one rural district. So my, uh, my current board of 17 will go down to seven. So this will, this will make significant changes to how we operate. Because right now we function with a lot of committees because we have a large board. So we have like a finance committee and an audit committee and, and et cetera, and et cetera. Uh, but with a board of seven, uh, that will, will have to change our, our structure. Um, so that we'll, we'll see how that goes in, in January. But um, and, and on top of that, you've got newly elected officials that that uh, start their new jobs with a new area with uh, new services. And so it will be demanding for for everyone for the first few years, for sure. It will be a lot of work to uh, to, to reconcile all that and get, get everybody on the same page uh, uh, in yeah. the new structure. Well, all the best to you. And thank you so much for joining us today. It's uh, been a real, real educational experience to learn about it. And it's been a real pleasure for us talking with you. It was my thank pleasure. You. Thank you. Thanks for joining us in the local Gov Cafe. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a minute to share it on social media or tell a friend. And we hope you'll join us next time as we welcome our next guest. You won't want to miss it.